HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at HearstRanch.com. Boys, I'm mellow as a honeydew, yeah, that cat is high. No bad look in his eye. Oh man, he's high. Yes, higher than a kite. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. In the studio today, we have CEO of Copper Sea uh, Copper Sea Distillery, upstate New York, Michael Kinslick. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Damon. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. We were just speaking a little bit uh, before the show about. The current state of craft distillation and brewing, and it really has started to find its way. I mean, it's 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 a it's a market that uh, it had to happen basically out of necessity uh, of quality, like we were speaking of before this show. Um, and going over some of the figures you were telling me before, it's really I I didn't realize it had been as uh, present. For, I guess, even since the early 60s. And you were telling me a little bit about uh, craft brewing and distillation coming up together. Why don't you give us a little insight on that? Sure. So um, the, uh, the craft distilling market is following really closely on the heels of both the craft brewing industry and even the reemergence of the premium wine business uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, Craft brewing, as everyone knows, has, has just become a, such a huge part of the beverage landscape in the United States now. Uh, last year, the number of craft brewers in operation uh, was over 2,000, which is really extraordinary and is the highest number of brewers in operation since the late 19th century. And, you know, everyone might think, oh, this market is saturated, but even that was a growth of almost 250 firms from the year prior. So people are still seeing opportunities to come in and make a product and build a business in that market. What, uh, what I was looking at um, from the distilling side is that the craft distilling market is really following the model of the craft brewing market almost exactly. So As far uh, as sales and growth? Uh, as far as number of firms in the market. Um, so if we look back even 10 years ago, uh, in 2000, there were about 25 craft distilleries in the market. 
the first firm was founded in about 1982. So the market had sort of grown, you know, a couple firms here and there year after year. And then since, uh, since 2000, when we had about 25 firms in the market, we had about 50 in 2005. And now we're up to about 250 firms in the craft distilling market. Wow. And it's following, uh, again, almost exactly the, the previous path of the craft brewing market. So I could easily envision um, 10 years down the road, there being well over 1,000 uh, craft distilleries up and running. And this is, a, like you said before, there, there are quite a, a few, obviously, uh, 10 times as many <laughs> distilleries as there were five years ago. Um, but where did this all start? I mean, it, it, was it California? Was it Midwest? I mean, it, it, had to have, it had to have come out of either a winery or a brewery. Mm. So every uh, industry sort of has a founding event. And we've identified uh, in the craft distillery market uh, Jepson Spirits, uh, Jackson Winery in uh, Northern California, and um, very close nearby, Germain Robin, as sort of the first identifiable um, firms that were marketing themselves as distinct as craft distillers. Um, since then, uh, you had uh, St. George nearby getting in the market and Domaine Charbet, uh, and then uh, really expanded from there. So Northern California was really the epicenter of the market, just like it was for uh, craft breweries with uh, Anchor Steam, starting that industry in San Francisco in the mid-60s. Um, but now you've got uh, craft distilleries in 46 states, I believe. Uh, and what we've seen when we look at one craft distillery opening in a state oftentimes is uh, a trendsetter, a, a groundbreaker. Sometimes there needs to be a change in legislation to make that happen. And once you have one or two operating up and running in a state, more tend to follow pretty quickly. So New York, for example, uh, in 2006, there were five craft distilleries operating in New York. With the passage of the uh, Farm Act in 2007, uh, New York now has 22 or more craft distilleries up and running and has become, um, is number two now to California in terms of numbers. Wow. That's a that's a hell of a, a jump in, you know, five, six years. Um, so do you find that in that industry, especially with a new market um, and having that many distilleries come up and out at the same time, like you said, kind of like uh, setting a trend, do you find that industry to be more competitive or more supportive of each other, like as far as like the different distilleries that are in the same market together? Uh, I think right now it's a rising tide lift all boats kind of market, and um, demand is expanding so much from a consumer side, and people have so much an interest in the uh, exploding variety of craft spirits that I think there's a lot of support in the market. Um, I have not had a bad conversation with anyone in terms of, uh, you know, supportiveness or um, no late night whiskey shot arm wrestling matches for no territory. <laughs> not yet um and you know people are approaching this market in all kinds of different ways um and some will make it and some won't you know as in as in any startup business there's there's always people who uh get in with with great hopes and and find themselves unable to solve the puzzle um but uh right now so since uh we've got about 250 up and running i've only been able to identify 10 firms that started and then exited the industry. So we're still very much in the point where there's many more people entering than leaving. 
Yeah. What do you? Th- that's really. Inter- I mean, like, what do you? What do you think it takes? Like, you were talking about like for consumer the consumers market, and what's going to make or break uh, a craft distillery. First of all, like, what what can classify as far as like numbers? What cl- uh, classifies a distillery as, as craft? Mm. So generally, there's a cutoff in terms of production scale. Um, and typically that's somewhere in around the 40,000 case a year um, volume range. Just to give you some perspective on how much that is, uh, something like um, Jack Daniels, they're, they're doing about 9 million cases a year in the U.S. Uh, something like Wild Turkey, they're about a million and a half, 2 million cases a year. Uh, you get down into sort of Glenfiddich, Glenlivet, they're doing several hundred thousand cases a year. Lafroig and some of the more um, uh, distinctive single malts are maybe in the high tens of thousands of cases a year. And then when you get down into the mid-low tens of thousands of cases a year, you're talking about some really unusual um, bottlings and exclusive products. So that's kind of a... Bricolati Octomore. <laughs> just to give you a sense of, yeah, just to give you a sense of kind of the range of um, what 40,000 cases a year means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, I mean, uh, a lot of these craft distillers can't really, with, with the low production, I mean, how's the distribution for these? I mean, how far is the reach? So you do see um, there are uh, more um, specialty distributors who are moving product into um, bars such as Roberta's here and uh, uh, fine spirit stores throughout the country. Um, the... Uh, I think some of the big boys, you know, the, the Southern Spirits and, and the major distributors, you know, they don't know how to do 2,000 cases a year. Right. <laughs> They're really, it's just too small for them to, to manage. Um, but a lot of the uh, smaller distilleries are allowed to sell directly out the door of the distillery, as we can here in New York. Uh, and they can do local marketing and local distribution um, in, their, in their locale. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a you know a humble struggle. There's no question. Yeah. You know, if you don't find um, a niche in the market that you can serve, it'll be it'll be hard. Yeah, you know, as a as a buyer for the bars that I run, um, I I notice a lot of uh, the smaller distilleries, the guys uh, that are working the stills, they're also out there uh, self distributing <laughs> out of the back of their cars, which is pretty pretty awesome. And it goes along with the whole like artisanal kind of craft movement it's it's as a as a buyer like i i I like seeing that actually i i feel bad sometimes because i'm like oh shit you're in your your scion cruising around brooklyn dropping off you know six bottles at a time if that but uh but it's it's cool you know in that right um going back to uh saying you know like what you were saying before about uh craft distillers and the way like you said before, there 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 are a lot of ways you can go wrong with it. What are some of the some of the factors that will like make or break uh, a brand mm. with a new spirit? Sure. Well, I think um, uh, you know from a from a business perspective, it always you know, and I when I look at a company and how they're trying to manage themselves, I always think of um, uh, the word that comes to mind is alignment. You know, do you have uh, alignment between the product you're bringing to market? how it's packaged, the pricing strategy you're using, the placement, where are you trying to sell it? Um, you know, you don't want to, uh, you know, 
what are the characteristics of the brand? Is it a mass market brand? Is it an exclusive brand? Is it an aspirational brand? Um, and I, I just have what I've seen is that a lot of folks um, are jumping into the market with a product first perspective mm-hmm. um, and, and trying to figure out marketing after they have a product. Shoot first, ask questions later. Exactly. And, and you know, the market is dynamic and, um, uh, you know, fluid enough right now that 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 might not be the worst strategy, you know, just to kind of get out there and, t- you know, test things out and see what see what uh, see what works and then do that. You know, sure. Sure. I mean, I, I agree. And I kind of also disagree a little bit. I mean, because like you were saying, that there are those 10 distilleries, those 10 craft distilleries that have gone down since since opening in the last like, you know, within the last decade. I mean, especially like with your your distillery being a new distillery, you've got you've put a lot of thought into uh, a lot of these aspects. And I mean, you just said, you know, shoot, like it might not be a bad strategy, but of course you're not doing that. You're actually going about it a very methodical, like very smart way. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, you know, I, again, from a business perspective, um, I feel like you need to have a solid plan uh, to get into the market. Uh, it certainly increases your chances of success. So, you know, we want to approach the market with um, heritage distilling methods, you know, very uh, high touch distilling methods, um, maintain a certain exclusivity around our product. Um, we'll certainly sell it at our distillery door, and, and we want to promote um, uh, solid customers through memberships and repeat customers. Uh, and then we'll also, you know, hopefully get into the market through small um, uh Establishments like Roberta's on the leading edge of the cocktail culture, and and uh, but you know we don't necessarily want to be in every Bevmo in the country. Sure, I mean the, it's like we were actually talking about before the show too. Uh, you know, if you if you, you you it's it's very easy to overdo it in this market. You know, like it, you can't you don't want to be everywhere. It's just like I don't want to see the same dude in the bar wearing the same shirt as I'm wearing, you know, it's like... Well, from, a, from building a business standpoint, I think you need to figure out which customers you want to serve and try to serve them as best you can. There's nothing wrong with um, saying we want to build a mass market brand and that's, that's how we want to build our business, but then you need to have the marketing to support that and the distribution to support that and um, that's, that's, a, 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 that's, go, that's the go big strategy. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to open up a little cocktail bar, but, you know, I know if I open a nightclub and do bottle service, I'm going to be raking in money. <laughs> but I'd feel better about having the, the small cocktail bar. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about Copper Sea Distilling and some of the really cool things that you guys are doing as far as pretending to very old-school craft, artisanal-style distilling. When we get back, we'll be talking with Michael Kinslick, CEO of Copper Sea Distillery.
ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. And we're back. You're listening to The Speakeasy. In the studio today, we have Michael Kinslick of Copper Sea Distillery. We were just talking about... uh, craft distilling uh the state of craft distilling nowadays and with uh the the recent history of the craft brewing and distillation movement and talking about copper sea distillery which is a very new distillery upstate in an old print shop that was built by a monastery (laughs) so yeah our um our facility is uh, up on the west side of the Hudson, uh, a little south of Kingston, and uh, the uh, Holy Cross Monastery is still across the street. They originally used the building to do uh, print shop work, and then it was an auto body shop for a while, and uh, we got in there uh, in November last year, cleaned it up, fixed it up a bit, and we're now fitting out our facility and awaiting our final licensing. You know, I just have to jump in here and say this real quick. Um, everything about that is completely badass to me and close to my heart because I collect classic cars. My degree is actually in communication arts and printing and now there's a distillery in it. So like basically this building has uh, a lot of Damon karma there. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Damon love in that place. So um, uh, with that being said, you've got some really interesting, very, very old school uh, methods that you're using to produce and some of those include I mean, you've got, first of all, you're doing direct fire on the still. Uh, you're doing wood fermentation vats. Everything's gravity fed. Can you tell us about it? Like, this is crazy. Like, no one's really doing that. No, I, I don't think anyone is really doing that. And um, it's important for us, if we want to differentiate ourselves from the crowd, to do that, um, you know, straight from the processes we're using. So we have an on-site well that feeds into a, a large cistern that we can gravity feed water down to the distillery house from. Uh, we have uh, our stills are going to be set up um, so that they can be hoisted and we can uh, feed the, the finished uh, feedstock directly out and re- you know, reflow the backwash up to the fermentation tanks. Uh, we're going to gravity feed everything from the water to the fermentation tanks to the stills to the outputs so that we don't have to pass our mash ever through a pump you know, and macerate the right. grain through that. Um, you know, this is how stuff was made uh, 150 years ago, and we want to harken back to the the real craft of distillation as it as it lived in this country. That's awesome. That's and you know, just talking about like or like well, for instance, you were saying that uh, your place is actually you're like what two blocks away from Japanese and and uh, in Berkeley where I yeah, live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're you're, you're actually like we we're speaking of uh, before the show. You you've been into the like slow food and like I'm not going to use the term foodie because I I hate that term (laughs) but but you're you're truly into this and you have been for quite some time and uh, to do it in these like old school methods I mean to me like I I, I'm already I'm already a fan you know like I want to go help distill and and macerate (laughs) and check this out Um, so from a uh, from a market point of view I mean obviously this is 
a passion of yours. It's not just like a marketing thing. It's not just like a way to make money. But uh, like when you got into this, like did, uh, what kind of research did you do to like figure out that you wanted to do it this way? I mean, obviously you were telling me before the show as well that you've done a lot, a lot of research. I've done a lot of research uh, into the market and the prospects for the craft distilled spirits market. And there's no question in my mind that just as craft brewing now has 9% of the U.S. beer market by dollars, uh, the craft distilled spirits market is going to grow from its current 1% or a little less than 1% up to 4 or 5 or whatever that number is going to be over the next 15 or 20 years. My partner, uh, Angus McDonald, is our distiller, and he really carries uh, the, the history of distilling close to his heart. He's done a lot of work on uh, reading old distillation manuals and really investigating how, how things were made 120 years ago, 140 years ago. So, for example, um, the reason that we use charred barrels now is because... When they would show up at the distillery house, you never knew what was going to be in them prior. They might have right. been filled with salt pork or pine tar or fish, fish, whatever. <laughs> and so you charred them out to to clean them up and make them palatable for the spirits. And that was the birth of bourbon on a long trip down the Mississippi. Exactly. The good reverend. So one of the ideas we're working with is, you know, we, we acquired a bunch of uh, used wine barrels. And one thing we might do is let a few of them just go funky and moldy and, and completely gnarly. Uh, and then rechar them just to see what that would do to, to the whiskey that we put in them. Sure, I mean as far as as far as barrels go and with cooperages, I mean you have different treatments first of all to wood, and also you have to let them air dry and and th- that makes so much more of a difference. I mean even before you fire it, just just letting it sit out in in nature and do its thing. And I think like especially. Even with like certain rums, you know, they've got the, like the, a lot of that funk, but it, that, that typically comes from like the different kinds of sugarcane. Like, but then even the barrels, I mean, like you let some weird things happen to them in it, like on an island, and uh, all of a sudden you've got something crazy. So I think that's a really cool idea, actually. Well, thanks. I think there are a lot of people doing some interesting things with with uh, unusual barrelings, and um, you know, it's a shame we ship all of our used whiskey barrels over to Scotland for them to use. They don't they don't demand that we put it in new charred barrels, you know, and they're perfectly happy to, to age yeah. their stuff in used barrels because it tempers the whiskey a little more. Absolutely. It's already had a chance to uh, chill out, so it's like, hey, we're, we're already laid back. Just, <laughs> hey, come here, come here, whiskey, hang out. Easier introduction. Yeah, exactly. So... Let's talk, because I'm just, I, I, I love this. You're doing direct fire. Now, can you explain for our listeners what that means? Sure. So um, our stills are uh, uh, really just very basic pot stills made by a company in Portugal called Hoga. Uh, they're about 100 gallons each. And we're going to set those on stands and um, put burners directly under them uh, rather than do what, what most uh, more technically advanced stills have these days is what's called a steam jacket where the the um there's a an extra metal shell around the still that that circulates uh live steam and it's more of an indirect heating method for the the mash inside 
I burned my hand on one at Woodford Reserve. Ouch. <laughs> um, and and so the, the the primary difference is the the direct firing is a little. Uh, a little more edgy. Uh, it, it gives you a little more control over the heat of the mash as it heats up and, and how you want to keep it, um, uh, what temperature you want to, you want to distill at. Uh, and small differences can make big differences in what you get uh, in outcome in terms of um, especially the, the, what I think of as sort of the base notes and the high notes of, of the distillate sure. as it comes off the still. Yeah. And it's also dangerous as fuck. <laughs> well, no, I mean, not if you're, not if you're, okay. you know, everything's well sealed, you know, you're not going to have alcoholic vapors drifting right. around. Yeah. That, that was a concern back in the day, though. Somebody uh, carried around buckets of uh, alcohol next to an open fire, but yeah, this is no, all you contained. don't want it. It's all, con- it'll be well contained. Yeah. And, you know, of course, we'll have fire extinguishers nearby just in case. Just in case. Got to, got to have a nice sprinkler system. I don't know if the, the, uh, the monks from the monastery put that in, but, uh, you know. You can always put that in later. Well, we do have the uh, eighty thousand gallon cistern sitting uphill. That's so true. Plenty of water right rip. there. Exactly. <laughs> Open up the hose. That's awesome. Um, so you got the direct fire, and uh, your fermentation vats are also they're wood. So a We're lot of people do like metal, sure. stainless. Metal stainless would be it would be the standard um, way to ferment. But traditionally, of course, you would have fermented in in wood vats, and um, some distilleries still do that. We were out. Um, uh, at the ADI conference in April, and we visited uh, uh, Four Roses, and they were still using mm-hmm. wood vats. Um, although I believe they said that as they were retiring those, they were going to move over to uh, to stainless. Um, it is a little more controllable, and when you're making sure. stuff in that kind of size, it it's, uh, makes sense. Yeah, I know a lot of there, a lot of well, going back to craft breweries, there are a lot of craft breweries who are still using wood. I mean, I think uh, Dogfish Head is one of the bigger ones that does. Uh, wood fermentation baths, right? Because they're doing like Palo Santo. And they're also doing from um, distillation. Right, right. That's true. And so is Rogue. Yep. See, it's like... It and so is McMenamin's. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's, uh, that's funny because we just said that before the show, or, like, or at the beginning of the show, that like a lot of times it'll follow a brewery or a winery. And there are quite a few brewers who are moving into the distilled spirits side of things. Colorado whiskey was Flying Dog. Might be. Uh, I think it was. I think Moab. Uh, there was one in Utah. I think Moab also yeah. had a brewery distillery. There, there are there are a handful out there. Yeah. yeah. So uh, now we've talked about your your still and your fermentation, like these very old school methods. I I think like the only way you can go more old school is to like have a bonded warehouse and do hundred proof. That would definitely make it really old school. Absolutely. But as far as uh, production and what you're planning on doing. Um, you are going to put out some different whiskeys. You're, you're saying, like, being from California and being around all the wineries, you're really into terroir. Absolutely. And, and we think there's an opportunity to bring uh, uh, terroir from grains into the market, especially um, with all the, the local farms uh, upstate. We want to source our grains um, from them and uh, bring out a tasting set of uh, locally grown grains that we want to really capture the, the local essence of. Um, so our initial product set, I think, will be a, uh, a white whiskey sampler of uh, corn and maybe a rye um, and uh, maybe a malted barley, a Scottish style. Cool. Yeah. And yeah. Then we'll also lay those out so that we can do um, longitudinal age sets of the same grains. Oh, nice. So it'll all be... Just right across the uh that's cool that's really cool sure. um 
And then we'll be able to taste stuff, you know, unaged, six months, a year, two years, and really get a sense of what barreling does to the whiskey over time. That sounds like a lot of fun. I, I really uh, I can't wait to get up to the distillery. Speaking of, um, so when do you, uh, when do you see, uh, when do you project having a product out? Well, we would love to be in the market later this year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's our that's our goal. But of course, we're um, still in our licensing phase, so it's it's uh, subject to um, TTB approval at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll need a little bit of time just to get everything up and running. But uh, I'm I'm confident or hopeful that that uh, sometime in the fall we'll be uh, we'll be able to bring stuff down to you and, and uh, have you try it. Yeah, well, you know, I like trying whiskey, so that's that works out perfectly. Uh, speaking of, what is your uh, favorite style of whiskey? I know you're you're about to start producing all kinds. What what were you? Uh, what would you normally have like if we weren't having a beer with me on the air right now? Uh, <laughs> so my my favorite. I'm, I'm gonna I'll, I'll I'll start with my favorite old school whiskey is a is a Scotch, um, and that's the Pinch Dimple Pinch. Oh yeah, um, always been fond of it. I think it's one of the best blendeds out there. Um, yeah, really enjoy that. Um, I think that uh, Leopold's is making some interesting stuff these days, Leopold Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of them. Um, I think the High West uh, Rise are very nice. Um, the Blended Rise, yeah, yeah, totally. And they're, they're also making a white whiskey as well. I haven't seen that. Uh, I'll look for that. I haven't had it. I've seen it. Oh, huh, okay. But, so I can't really give you an opinion on that. <laughs> Excellent. But I have had their rye. Um, so... Uh, so scotch and rye so i'm I'm kind of like picking up because a lot of scotch drinkers and rye drinkers will switch back and forth between those two but not necessarily touch bourbon because it's a little bit sweeter so that makes a lot of sense uh not to speculate your taste (laughs) but uh i think i can uh i can uh successfully uh predict some of the flavor profiles are going to be coming out of copper sea distillery very soon well, thank you. Yeah, I think we're gonna. Um, you know, we really want to appeal to the the sipping whiskey market. You know, the connoisseur market, and and really make stuff that is gonna make them sit up and take notice and say, "Wow, that's really good." So, uh, that's our goal, and I hope we uh, are able to achieve it. Absolutely, it's been really uh, a great pleasure talking to you about this. I don't I don't really get to uh, geek out about uh, the the industry side, the uh, the production and uh, the market side very often, but when I do. I very much enjoy it, and uh, I can't wait to uh, taste some of your whiskeys when they come out, and best of luck to you with Copper City Distillery. No, thanks so much for having me, Damon. I really look forward to um, uh, bringing stuff down to taste next time we get together. Absolutely. Michael, it's been a pleasure. We will check in next week on the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. Cheers. Look at that look in his eye. Oh, man, he's high. Yes, higher than a kite. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Yes, he's high.